Well, hello. Greet everyone with a holy kiss. You might be safe to do that at home, actually. I just noticed that just then. It's very tough to do that. Actually, we ought not do it through this season anyway, but uh, we're back here again. Uh, It's so tragic. But we're going to uh, press on in the Bible, do what we do every time we meet, and uh, continue to move through it as we go. And uh, as has been mentioned, a lot of you are feeling pain about... uh, It's happened right at holidays. And it just seems to happen at that moment. Uh, It's tragic and painful. But let's press on. Let's consider the scriptures together. Uh, We're in the last of our series in Romans. We're looking at the very last chapter of the book of Romans. And it is something of a challenge. I mean, it's a challenge to read. How do you read all of those names and so on? But you've got a massive list of names that go through this chapter, probably bigger than any letter Paul has written. And uh, what do you do with it? What do you do with all of these names? How do we, how do we think about that? Uh, most, of us, it, most of it is just a list of greetings, and I guess you could do a sermon on friendship. Paul had lots of friends, in fact, uh, more than many of us have got, I dare say. Uh, but then there is a section that happens, verse 17 down, uh, towards the end of the chapter, which pays attention to false teaching. Uh, It's an unusual end to uh, the letters that Paul writes and and maybe it kind of lends itself to a whole sermon about the fact that Christianity, the Christian faith, has boundaries Uh, and that would be an important thing to consider, especially given the whole theology of the book all the way up to this point. Paul cares that we understand and know the truth of the things of Christ, how it is we relate to God, we only relate to Him through the work of Jesus on our behalf, who died in our place. And it's only by faith in Him and faith alone that makes it possible for us to be reconciled to a holy God uh, who has loved us while we're still enemies. These things are extraordinarily important, wonderful truths. And Paul, at the end of the letter, says to watch out for those who put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teachings you have learned, verse 17. Keep away from them. Uh, It is a very important message in our day and culture. Uh, where we tend to not want to have boundaries, we want to have people just do and be whatever they want to be. But this New Testament letter reminds us, as all the others do, that it matters what you believe and it matters how you respond to God. We could have a whole message on that. And I might actually suggest that's probably the main point. The the point of this chapter probably finishes there. It's uh, very significant. But I'm going to focus somewhere else. And... I'm sorry about that in a sense. I want to focus on a topic that is tangential to the passage. It's not even a point in the passage. Uh, It's not a point Paul is making consciously. Um, But it's an insight that comes from the passage. And I just want to say, this is a danger. What I'm about to do is dangerous. Um, And so I, I want you to make sure as a church that we rarely do this, what I'm about to do. Um... Topical preaching is good, uh, but it is prone to abuse. We need to keep sticking to the passages and let the passages set the agenda for us. But given our context today, and I don't mean COVID, given our cultural context, the tangential insight, I believe, is hugely important. And that tangential insight is the place of women in the early church. Now, I suspect most of you will hear that that's going to be the topic and be immediately interested. Uh, Many of you will find that uh, inherently interesting. But just to give more fuel to that interest, I do want to suggest this, that the issue of men and women 
Today is a battleground. Perhaps you don't need me to say that, but we are in a great um, revolution, a climax of fighting around this question. Um, what is a woman? What is a man? How do they relate together? How are we to think of each other? We have uh, an epidemic of domestic violence, which uh, is an increasing thing. And it's not just because reporting's easier to do. There, there is actually a movement amongst us that's greatly concerning. And there's an important conversation around the causes of domestic violence, uh, how to minimise it. Uh, and many are insisting, in the midst of all of that, an important conversation, but in the midst of all of that, many are suggesting that one of the chief causes of domestic violence is Christianity, is the Bible's teaching on men and women. Now, this is massively significant and something we need to pay attention to. It's even the reason, well, this apparent teaching of the Bible on men and women, on women particularly, it's even one of the reasons many people won't even consider Christianity because they have heard that it teaches certain things that they find despicable and the things they think it's teaching are despicable uh, but they've heard it's teaching these kinds of things and they believe it's got a destructive view of women and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Now that may be you actually this morning, it may be that the stream has given you reason, you're stuck at home and you're thinking I'll, I will just put my head in, you may never have thought to come to church itself but the convenience of the stream, it might be you even have some of those concerns um, about what the Bible teaches on women. So I've made the judgment this morning that it's worth stepping aside from the main point, just this once, to consider what this passage teaches about women particularly, but women and men. And in doing that, I want to do a second thing. So I want to look at what the passage teaches about women, but I want to do a second thing, which is actually have a look at ourselves, do some self-reflection as people who are shaped by our culture. So let's dive in. The chapter starts with this massive list of greetings, uh, a bunch of personal greetings that people Paul knows, and there's many he doesn't mention by name uh, that are there as well. He greets 26, as far as I can tell, 26 separate individuals. Two families he greets and three house churches. That's a lot of people. I think it's more people than most of us actually have friends. It's uh, an extraordinary thing about Paul. And on its own, that's significant. Paul is a people guy. He actually loves people. It's very evident from all his writings. Every letter ends with a list of greetings. People mattered to Paul. Uh, he wasn't a kind of cold zealot. He was warm. He, he, he loved people. But more... Of the 26 individuals, 10 of them are women. Now that in itself is significant, it's statistically impressive. Almost half the greetings are towards women. And back in the day, back in that culture and that age, which was known for being very male-centric, it's noteworthy that Paul is countercultural. He wasn't shaped by his culture. That's noteworthy. More than this, a number of the women are, very, are clearly very important to Paul and in the early church. You look at the very first one, verse 1. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencre. Um, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people 
and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been a benefactor of many people, including me. Uh, I don't know, let's just assume that's how you pronounce Senkrei. It's tricky things to pronounce all these different words, but uh, let's offer that as a, a suggestion. But she's called a deacon in our translation, a deacon of the church in that place. Now, the word deacon just comes from the, the Greek word servant, um, uh, and uh, it, was, it was a word that was used in many different contexts and places. Uh, you actually get it uh, used particularly in Acts chapter 6, of a group of um, uh, people who were chosen to look after an administrative need within the church in that early time and they were set aside as uh, servants or deacons uh, and it's possible, it's likely actually, as by the end of the, Old, the New Testament that this kind of role of servant or deacon formalised into an actual office of the church. And uh, by the end of the New Testament era, we get three offices in the church, at least, uh, uh, potentially, certainly two at least, uh, but deacon was one of them. Now, at this stage of writing, has a, is Phoebe a formally appointed person to a role called the deacon? Um, very likely, very likely. Uh, she is an office bearer in the church, of the early church. And she's likely carrying this letter to the Christians in Rome. You don't just stick a letter in a mailbox and someone picks it up and you, you actually give it to someone to send off to another part of the ancient world and Phoebe is likely the one who's the courier, um, which therefore means she, for Paul she is a highly trusted messenger and she commends, uh, Paul commends this woman to the Roman Christians. She, he says, I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Paul has depended on her and has looked to her for great help. Um, she is a significant woman in Paul's life, and he wants the Romans to know this, to treat her with high regard and respect. So there's Phoebe, the, fir the first person Paul talks about, a woman of great uh, significance in his life and in the ministries of the church. Then verse 3, you've got Priscilla. Greet Priscilla and Aquila. Now, we meet this couple throughout the New Testament a number of times. I think it's six times they're mentioned through the New Testament. Priscilla is the woman, the feminine name, and Aquila is the husband. And four of the six times, Priscilla is mentioned first, and here she is mentioned first again. And Paul calls them, both Priscilla and Aquila, his fellow workers. His fellow workers, both the husband and the wife. Um, she is alongside her husband in the work and he adds that the churches are grateful to them. Uh, not, only, not only I but all the churches of Gentiles are grateful to them, Priscilla and Aquila. And he talks about the church that meets in their house, not in his house. These are interesting little insights into the way that Paul thought about these women in his life. She's not a shadow to a husband. As far as Paul is concerned, he sees her standing alongside her husband in the work of the ministry of the gospel and her activities and so on. Then you get Mary, uh, verse 6, finally a name you can pronounce. Mary who worked very hard for you 
she is honoured, likely working hard for you in the ministry of the gospel. You jump past verse 7, there's an important one we'll look at there in a moment, but you get a number down to verse 12. There's two women there uh, who worked hard in the Lord. Um, you, uh, you get um, uh, Persis uh, further down uh, and you get verse 13, the mother of Rufus who is mentioned. Um, and you get one of them mentioned as a, my dear friend. Um, where is it? One of the women who are mentioned as my dear... Persis, another woman who, greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard for you in the Lord. Paul had a lot of time for women. He honoured them. And verse 7, let's come back to verse 7, he thought very highly of them. Um, dig into verse 7 for a moment. There's actually some little complications in verse 7. It's worth noting. There's a couple of bits of verse 7 that are ambiguous. You could translate them in different ways. Two pieces. Uh, the name of the second person, Junior, there's some ambiguity about that. And the little phrase, outstanding among the apostles. That little phrase, outstanding among, has some ambiguity about it. And just dig into that with me for a moment. Junior. Is, is that name male, masculine or feminine? Is it the name of a woman or a man? Well, there's a lot of debate about it and some translations will go different directions. Now, in part, there's debate about it because of what it means. Uh, because what's said of Andronicus and Junior is that they're outstanding among the apostles. So is it a man among the apostles or a woman among the apostles? So there's a, lot of, there's a little bit at stake in this issue. Um, and that actually shapes some of the ways people translate it. Uh, in my view, uh, I think it's a woman. I think if you look at a plain uh, estimation of the evidence uh, for whether it's male, female, I think the, the weight of the evidence is towards it being a woman. And I think, again, it's a husband and wife, Andronicus and his wife, Junia, my fellow Jews. The other little ambiguity there is outstanding among the phrase outstanding among the apostles. Now that could go two different ways as well. It could, be, uh, it could be they are among the apostles and they're outstanding within the group of the apostles. Or it could be they're regarded as outstanding by the apostles. Do you see? So that Andronicus and Junior aren't among the apostolic group, they're just regarded by the apostles as outstanding. Now again, um, you can see there's a bit of stake in this issue. If a woman is regarded as among the apostles, what does that mean for the early church and the way we think about... So there's a, there's, but if throwing off all the agenda issues, just considering the evidence in its plain sense, I think, uh, I think it is, as the NIV has translated, outstanding among. So the implications of this is that you have Paul talking about a husband and wife... Andronicus and Junior, who are among the apostolic group. Paul thinks very highly of women. He thinks highly of their, women, their work within the church. He thinks highly of them as people in the church. He has them as dear friends. He entrusts them with significant ministries, Phoebe. And what's most important in this is that he's not saying any of this to make a point about men and women. 
It's not like he's thinking of the Roman church as a 21st century politically policing the thoughts of Paul and he's wanting to make sure he doesn't get cancel culture against him and so he's got to talk up women and make sure that they approve of him. He's not doing any of that. He doesn't care what they think about his... his it's just a random list of greetings with no agenda. He's just genuinely expressing his interest in what's happening and so on and it's it's unconscious and spontaneous the way he talks about women in the list of his greetings now that's important because uh, if you notice this it's out of the heart the mouth speaks and out of the heart uh, the, the, the mouth speaking will often reflect very closely on what the heart is thinking and feeling when you're caught off guard you know when you're tired and uh, the kid or the, 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 your spouse or a friend says, jumps on you or something. It's out of your, it's, it's in those unguarded moments that you'll see what your heart is really like. You know, you can put it on when you come to church and you can make sure that you say what we want to hear and each other and so on. But on those unguarded moments, it's the spontaneous, when you're tired, when you're alone, when no one's watching, that's the real you that emerges. Well, Paul is just throwing off greetings. There's no agenda, there's no thought to make a point, he's just got a random list of people and in that he spontaneously praises women. He affirms them. He just speaks of them as co-workers with significant responsibilities, not in a patronising way. He's not throwing scraps like this. He's just writing naturally. And what emerges is a completely natural affirmation of men and women together in the ministry as fellow workers. Men and women to be praised equally. My dear friend and working hard in the Lord. She is, entrust yourself. She, there isn't any hint in any of this of an insecure male protecting male patriarchy. For Paul, it is normal, natural and praiseworthy that women work in the home, Rufus's mother is praised, and work outside of the home. They work in the Lord. Uh, Phoebe is a, is a single woman, travelling, it seems, on her own in an important ministry task. And Paul honours her. He honours those who are alongside their husbands, who are single women, who are... Now, I'm conscious as I say all of this and point it all out that many today will be surprised by what you see in Romans 16. Shocked even. Why? Well, because we've told ourselves a story, a narrative over the last uh, 50 years to justify, I, su I suggest, the modern liberation movement. Actually, no, to strengthen the modern liberation movement in the broad public's estimation, to kind of gather more support for the people leading the modern liberation movement, to win more of us to what it's doing and to win more of us to support everything that it's doing. We've told ourselves a story, a, a narrative, and it goes something like this, that it's, it's our generations, it's the last couple of generations that have fought a noble battle of liberation. A battle to liberate women out from under harsh oppression, which up until the last 50 years has been dreadfully, uh, the oppression's been dreadful. Women have been cruelly and harshly crushed under men 
And the main culprit, the story says, has been Christianity. Especially Paul. Jesus we like, but Paul, well, he was a misogynist. Because up until the story goes, up until the rise of the Christian faith, women were largely free in Rome and Greece and so on, in pagan cultures. But then along came Christianity, or at least Paul's version of Christianity, which destroyed women and oppressed them and locked them up. But thanks to some brave activists, we are now free. So the story goes. Now, have you heard that story? It is inspiring and it does create a sense of heat towards the past and affirmation towards all the activists and what they're doing. It actually creates a loyalty and so on. It's just not true. Now, (laughs) some parts are true. Women have been treated horrendously by men down through history. And we do, you know, I think we do want to applaud many courageous women who are standing up and saying something about that. I think there is something very important and good about the movement we've seen in the last bunch of years. There has been and still is in many places terrible oppression. Domestic violence is real. And it's on the increase, which doesn't quite fit the narrative, but it's on the increase. Why is that so? It matters that we find out. And domestic violence is among church people. At least in many churches as much as it is in the community, and it ought not be so. And that people are courageously pointing this out. We want to affirm that. So I'm not, I'm not dismissing these things and being critical of that particular dimension of what's happening um, as, a, as bad as I think the narrative is and as unfair and, and untrue as the whole narrative is, there are dimensions of it that we need to listen to and pay attention to and that are helpful. But like most narratives, it's spun much of what it says in a way to serve its own purposes. What I mean by that is this. We are in a battle. We're in a spiritual battle over the Bible, over Paul, actually. That's why the warning at the end of this chapter is important to us, that uh, we do need to watch out, verse 17, for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them. Such people are not serving Christ, but their own appetites, smooth talk and flattery. They deceive the minds of naive people. Um, We do need to take heed and watch we are in a spiritual battle and it began in the garden actually it began a long time ago uh, with Adam and Eve our first uh, parents there they're in a battle over whether humans will listen to the word of God and submit to the good word of God or find their own way you remember the great battle back then you remember Satan the spiritual force who's a father of lies He raised for them, did God really say, you shall not, you should not, you must not eat? Or or if he said it, did he say it with your best intentions at heart? Or was it about keeping you down? Was it about oppressing you? Is that why he said it? One of the strategies Satan brought to bear was doubting what God said, but then doubting why he said it, the motives that God brought to it. It's the same today. Now, not simply... Let me just offer this caution. Not simply some who are raising problems about the Christian faith and the way it has been taught 
are sincere and genuine and we need to listen to them. Some of it is very helpful to us. But there is a mood, a concerted effort to paint the Bible as the enemy, to create hostility towards the Bible so that people won't look at it. And Paul is at the centre of that hostility. The Bible's bad, but Paul is at the heart of that misogynistic culture, so the story goes. There's a tussle going on in our culture over the credibility of God's Word, the Bible, amongst us. And it feels a little like parents who are going through a, a, a terrible divorce, let's say, who are fighting over the kids. And, uh, you know, one member of the couple, uh, perhaps in their insecurity, uh, wants to win the children to themselves and so creates a narrative around the other member of the, the, the breakup. You know, your mother or your father, you know, is this evil person you must not relate to and so on. Um, to protect their own pain or the kids and to keep their kids from the other. They've sold half-truths to paint the other party as wholly negative, um, someone to keep away from. But here's the thing, as those kids grow up and finally meet the, the father or the mother who was given this story around... And find, yes, some bits, there was, you know, dimensions of it there. But, but he, she isn't all that they were told. It can be for, them, for kids like waking up from a, a, a nightmare that, you know, all the furniture of life has to be rearranged because the man that I thought he was actually wasn't what I thought. The woman, I, she wasn't the way she was cast to be and I've had to now completely rearrange. No, she's actually been for me all this time and I've been cold. You know, it can be like that with the Bible can be like that with Paul. The world will want us to think of the Bible as negatively as possible. But when as an adult you read it properly and you read the difficult bits in context and, and you read the fuller picture of the whole message of the Scriptures and you read the Romans 16 with your eyes open, you realise Paul is not the woman-hater that he was cast to be. It's just not true that he was insecure and oppressive. That's just not Paul. He valued and honoured women. And he almost didn't see gender. Do you know, he almost didn't... He, he, in a list of names, he just rattled off men and women that he honoured. and He treated them equally. He treated them according to their character and their heart for Christ. And it's not just here in Romans 16. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11, we had a wonderful time a couple of years ago in going through 1 Corinthians 11 where Paul, this same author, talks about women as the glory of man. Do, do, do you know? Man's great, but women, the woman was when God got it right. <laughs> Paul says she's the one who actually shows the greatness of humanity. He's a very high view of women. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14, the way he talks about women's ministry as prayer and prophesying, words of encouragement and so on. Ephesians chapter 5 and the words that he has to men about loving their wives, dying for their wives. This is not a, a woman-hating first century cultural patriarch. This is, this is a man who is broken free from his culture. And in a sense, here's my attempt to start you on the journey of finding a way through the narrative that you've picked up culturally, we're being told culturally, finding a way through it to see 
Wow, the Bible's not quite the way it was painted. Yes, in the last bunch of years, uh, wonderfully, there's been some great wins uh, for men and women together. I, I, I think we can applaud much. Um, and there's, there's many courageous women we want to support who are, who are raising issues of violence and oppression that we need to pay attention to, we need to listen to. All of this is very helpful for us. But the problem's not Paul, the problem's not the Bible. It's the Bible in the hands of sinful men and women. And it's not as if outside of Christianity, before Christian faith came, it was all light and love and wonderful and men and women have... No, it was oppression and darkness. It was dreadful. And there was much light and has been for 2,000 years within Christianity as the gospel has, has transformed men to love their wives and women to find a dignity in a place that they didn't have in pagan society. The story just isn't as we've been told. And I want to encourage you to read the Bible for yourself carefully. Don't fall for the simplistic narrative. You see, there's the first piece. What is the Bible saying here about women? Very helpful and wonderful picture. But second, I want to raise for us a challenge for ourselves in all of this. As people immersed in our cultures, and I say cultures plural, because we are, there are a number of different cultures running along together at the moment. And I want, to, I want to encourage us to see this is quite tricky to look at ourselves and see ourselves in all of this. But here's the thing. I, we, all bring agendas to reading the Bible. We bring agendas to reading all information. It's just, this is not just the Bible, this is us. We bring our own prejudices and so on. And it makes it hard to read the Bible as we ought. Not impossible. That's why we need each other, because we help each other see our blind spots. Um, but it's, it, it can be a challenge to... Read the Bible in a way that doesn't shape it to fit in with the way we want it to be. Now, this is not new. Uh, in 2 Peter chapter 3, 15, 16 and 17, Peter warns about people who will distort the Scriptures. Um, so this is something that's always possible with sinful hearts because we have this thing in us, we have this thing that's prone to selective reading to only noticing some parts and not others and then shaping the parts that we notice in a way that fits what we want them to say. It's not the fault of the Bible. It's humans who distort for their own ends. So let me cast this in a... Let me see if I can put this together. If you're in a... And for want of a better label, forgive the label, but if you're a 1950s Christian... And I don't mean if you grew up in the 1950s, I mean if you're someone who kind of um, still carries with you the culture of the 1950s or have been born later and embraced the 1950s culture of a way of thinking about men and women that's very one-dimensional. Uh, let's call it this, I mean it's not a very accurate title but at the label, the kind of culture that thinks about men and women in very black and white terms where men are out to work and women are at home 
with the cooking and the kids and men are doing the real stuff and women are supporting in the background uh, and the idea of submission is really subservience, which is a dreadful way to think about it, but the 1950s, let's label it like that. Now, what would a 1950s Christian, and again, I don't mean you born in the 50s, I mean you who've got that kind of culture in the way you think about men and women, what would a 1950s Christian do with chapter 16 of Romans? Most just missed it. It is focused elsewhere on verses that sort of endorse the way they want to think about men and women. And also missed 1 Corinthians 11 and the glory of man and Ephesians 5 and the husbands and the way they're, and 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and the, the verbal activity of men and women in church. I missed these things. Missed the rich teaching of the Bible on the equality of men and women, co-heirs in Christ and so on. Missed it. Or worse, distort it in a very simplistic way, the teaching that is in the Bible around the order of men and women, so that it became um, domination of men over women, which is not at all what the Bible is teaching. But there is this ability to, with what we want it to be, miss some bits and distort other bits. We are all prone to this. And I'd encourage you, if um, that has been something of your flavour, I just urge you to hear the Bible and what it actually says in its fuller dimensions, its larger frame, and let all of that confront your prejudices and agendas. Now, it can be hard because those agendas can mean a lot to you. They've given you security in the way you've lived your life and related to one another. It's been a source even perhaps of control that you've had over others. Let it go. You must let it go. It offends our God that you live in relationship with women like that. But I want to suggest that this insight about bringing agendas to the Bible goes both ways. You can come to the Bible as a fully shaped 21st century adult having agendas and prejudices just as strong as the 1950s Christian, if you like. You can come as a fully shaped progressive 21st century Christian with your own agendas and so a plain reading of Romans 16 where Junius is among the apostles you, you, you kind of applaud that and say yes it's very clear we should just read the Bible plainly and let it just say what it says and not be shaped by our agendas but when we then go to 1 Timothy 2 and notice a plain reading of that passage gives us another dimension to the men-women relationship there can be a reluctance to allow that there, but a keenness here. Friends, it's, we are all prone to bring our agendas and we need to work with each other on it. And in fact, in Romans 16, that verse 7, the one I mentioned, um, an agenda-driven Christianity will kind of refuse to see that it could be a, a woman and refuse to see it could be a because they don't want the implications of that. But on the other side... 21st century progressive Christians have suggested from this chapter that therefore women led churches and were preachers to mixed audiences. They've said that Junius is among the apostles and so therefore she carried the authority of the apostles. But the problem with that is it doesn't see the broad teaching of the scriptures which is that the word apostle throughout the New Testament has a number of flavours to it. 
The word apostle can just mean the 12 apostles plus Paul, the very authoritative group that ruled the church, if you like, that grounded the church with its word. But the word apostle is applied to a broader group that don't carry that same authority. So you get in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and Philippians chapter 2 and various other places, the word apostle applied to a much larger group of people who weren't in authority over the churches but were emissaries, sent ones, church planters. And so it's likely that Andronicus and Junior were a church planting couple or perhaps a couple who were sent to visit from church to church uh, not carrying the kind of 12 plus 1 apostolic authority, but rather exercising a ministry that, in a broader sense. You see, we need to be careful of our 21st century progressive agendas that we don't end up over-reading what the text is saying. Same with Phoebe. Some have suggested from Phoebe that, uh, that she didn't just carry the letter, but she taught the letter. She was the ones charged by Paul to preach the meaning of Romans to the Roman Christians. Well, that is a real stretch. The text doesn't say any of that and there's no necessity to believe that that could be the case. But the danger of an agenda is that you'll find in the text what you want to find and we need to be careful to watch that. Um, and remember too that Paul, who wrote all of this and expressed very warmly an appreciation and affirmation of women in a non-patronising way, um, was the same person who wrote 1 Timothy 2, which establishes boundaries in the roles of men and women. The point here is that 1 Timothy 2 is not driven by personal hostility. Paul gave limits... And that he gave limits, given who he was and who he is as a person, must have had good reasons for them. So let me pull all of this together. And, and uh, can I address women amongst us? Can I encourage you to see yourself through the lens of the Bible? Encourage you to see the honour the Bible gives you the significance, the importance of who you are and the role that you play. And, and I always find it strange talking like that because I don't want it at all to sound like I'm the one giving this to you. It, no, 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 I'm just wanting to be the one to acknowledge that the Bible gives this to men and women. And I want to point that out for us. Friends, it is a great privilege in our church life to work alongside so many wonderful women who are dear friends, who are honoured amongst us. And can I say to men, to husbands, to love your wives as Christ loved the church. She is a co-heir with you. Cherish her, don't ever harm her. Repent of it quickly. Use your strength and you have a strength, God-given strength, use your strength to serve not abuse. Mothers, notice this beautiful word about the mother of Rufus. Um, the mother of Rufus was a mother to Paul. Mother, motherhood is a beautiful, important role, a powerful role that's not just for biological kids but for broader nurture and care and compassion of others. Use that wonderful gift God has given you. Can I say single women? Notice Phoebe. 
It's a beautiful thing within the Christian faith that men and women, married, single, are affirmed as having significant and important roles. Never think of yourself in, in somehow diminished. Uh, Phoebe was an important person in Paul's ministry and Paul's life and the church's life. Recognise you have great opportunities. Do you know, I saw so much of this. I went to a, um, went to a birthday party a year or two. I can't remember now the timing, but I went to a, it was a 60th birthday party, which just tells you, not that I'm at that level of life, but that I have friends who are much older than me, right? But I went to a 60th birthday party and uh, it was a woman who had turned 60 and her husband had put the function on for his wife. And at the sort of towards through the, the evening, uh, he sat down with her to give a speech about his wife. And I sat there listening to this, to this man who was nurtured deeply in biblical truth, thoroughly committed to the full picture of the scriptures about men and women and the way we relate together. And I was... I was touched deeply by his affection for his wife, his respect and honour that he gave to his wife. It was the most extraordinary thing to see him talk about his wife and hold her up as his glory and praise her and give thanks for her and love her and do it publicly. And I sat there thinking, this is what the Bible creates. This is the husband biblical theology creates when it's read in its fullness, without agendas, when, when you see the whole picture of what the Scriptures are. It creates a man who is deeply respectful, deeply considerate, deeply loving. Do you know, Romans 16 is an important part of the Bible, not for the, you know, it's an important part of the Bible for the main point that it gives us, and I'll come back to that just in a moment. It's important for its unconscious expression of men and women and how the Bible thinks about them. Can I encourage you to see that? To not buy the narrative and the line that's being fed to us. I mean, listen where we need to listen. But not buy the whole story as if it's true. The Bible is a richer thing than that. But let me finish by saying this. The bottom line I want to leave with this is that the Bible is God's good word. There's a goodness about God's word. Satan in the garden, he's only saying it to oppress you. No, he wasn't. He's always said what he says to bring us life, to liberate us truly, to bring us a rich relationship between men and women, to bring health to our relationships. To bring an equality that's a radically deep equality between men and women. That's God's good purpose. And when you read the fullness of the scriptures, you'll see it there throughout the whole picture. Many of us need to question our 1950s thinking of Christianity and men and women. But many of us need to rethink our 21st century progressive agendas as well. We need all of us to come back to God's word. And trust God in his goodness who has spoken to us so wonderfully. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that please that might be the case, that you might help us gladly sit under the sound of your voice in your word and not, not bring our agendas to twist and distort, but genuinely hear what it's saying in its own right and gladly submit to your word.
Please help us not be naive. Please help us not be swept here and there by every wind of teaching, by every narrative we hear, that you might help us understand properly what you have given us and live by it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.